Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. It's the Swole Patrol Podcast. Swole Patrol. Calling all members of the Swole Patrol. It is the Swole Patrol Podcast. Oh, yes, yes. With me, Mike Hathaway, and Dr. Drew Pinsky. Ah, it's fantastic. It is a uh, Swole Patrol episode, I don't know, like, let's say four-ish. <laughs> Find me on Twitter at Mike Catherwood. Dr. Drew is at Dr. Drew, of course. DrDrew.com backslash contact and put Swole in the email and you can get yourself your question. Maybe we'll read it here on the podcast if it's a good one. Uh, drdrew.com is where you can find everything related to Dr. Drew, including this podcast, uh, the This Life podcast, Adam and Dr. Drew, a lot of great stuff there. Facebook.com slash Swole Patrol podcast or on Twitter at Swole Patrol pod as well. Uh, our guest today is a world record holder. He is a, a, an excellent master's athlete and he is the man that has started Something of, a, of an explosion in the health and fitness world, and that explosion is of eating entirely meat. And I don't mean mostly meat. I don't mean uh, meat with every meal. I mean everything that goes in your mouth is animal flesh. He is Dr. Sean Baker, at Sean Baker 1967 on Instagram, sbakermd on Twitter, and uh, meatheels.com is the website to get more information. Uh, thank you for joining us, dude. The first question I have is what got you started on eating what most people would would look at as kind of a radical diet of all meat yeah well i mean I, like i said i've always kind of pushed myself to the limits and uh you know i was already low carb i was already in a ketogenic diet doing reasonably well just started reading about it reading about some of the historical stuff reading about some of the historical populations and how they were known for prodigious physical capacity and they basically were on carnivorous diets like the mongols and some of the other societies that we know existed that way Seeing other people that did it, looking at some of the early bodybuilders, you know, guys like Vince Garanda, where he advocated, you know, steak and eggs diets for some of the guys in the kind of in the pre-steroid days. And so I just did it as an experiment to see uh, what it would do for my performance. And also there were a few niggly health issues that were still kind of giving me trouble. And I had been reading about people that have been doing this for, you know, 5, 10, even 20 years who were claiming that literally they're, they're, all the health issues they had were going away. And so that's what got me interested in doing it. Uh, you know, it's nice to have an MD as a guest because usually I do, I mean, 
I've gotten to the point where I have no problem uh, making fun of Dr. Drew and poking, uh, poking holes in anything he has to say, even though I'm far from a professional. But uh, I, it, truth be told, uh, you know, I'm oftentimes like to show deference to his wealth of knowledge when it comes to the human body. But uh, I mean, what the, is that? What does that, what does that oh, have? you stop it, Dr. <laughs> Drew. I mean, if you're talking about anything that really is based in biology or anatomy, I, I go, well, listen, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, so I'll... I'll, I'll uh, no, no, look, no, look let, let, me, let me kiss your butt a little bit. You, you are well-read on physiology. I, I understand you don't understand some of the fundamentals of the biochemistry, but your sense of physiology is pretty good, and, and you read a lot, and you're well-versed in it, and you, you may not be able to contextualize it the way Dr. Baker and I can because we have so much clinical experience, but, but don't, don't cut yourself short. Please. Well, thank you. That means a lot. First off, let me, re- let me point out to everybody that Dr. Drew is joining us from New York City because you were in Washington, D.C. at an opioid conference? Is yeah, that- I was at the White House. It was in the East Room. I got to meet, I uh, spent a little FaceTime with uh, Kellyanne and Jeff Sessions and Melania. Man, her accent is heavy. I mean, like, barely comprehensible now. And uh, I, I was reading about her Einstein uh, immigration uh, uh, sort of uh, nod. I might have to wonder about that. But anyway, uh, it was really good. Very, very good. I'm, I'm encouraged for the first time. They, they are really taking action. Mike, we'll have to do a separate thing on that. It, it's uh, for the first time in 15 years. I'm, I'm hopeful we're going to turn this ship around. That's that. That's a big, big, big compliment to the to the administration because, like, I, I I'm not touching this with a 10 foot pole. The current uh, administration is such a divisive kind of entity. But I will say this: in, in your in your opinion, Drew, you really feel like they're on the right path to dealing with this. True crisis. There, there's no doubt in my mind. There, there, you know how opinion I am about yeah. this stuff, and I, this is the first time I've been really encouraged. They're they're going down a couple of paths I'm not too hip on, but but they're listening and they're willing to meet with me. I'm going to meet with the head of the ONDCP. I've got another meeting with Kellyanne coming up, and they really, you know, they're very open, but they're they're on they're on the move. I mean, the the guy that's really taking action is Jeff Sessions, and there's, yeah. you're going to be reading about this. There's going to be a lot of a lot of stuff, and uh, I think that's unfortunately what it's going to take to get the pain management world to stop the opioid prescription. They're going to have to think about it and be scared about it and have some, some consequence if, if people die. And uh, that's it. You know, so it's time. It's time. I, I, and so I'm, I'm, I'm worried about the treatment side of things, and we'll kind of see how that goes. I, I'm advocating strongly that they should contemplate uh, at least stepping behind and educating people about free things that are out there, like mutual aid societies, that now there's a Cochrane study coming that uh, – shows it's as effective for abstinence, sustained abstinence, as any professionally managed treatment out there. So we, we got, we're, we're getting there. We're getting there. But it, that's not for today. It's sure. not okay. for today. Well, you brought today, up- we're, today we're talking about, talking about beef today. We're talking about beef and we're talking about deadlifts. And uh, you brought up, you brought up huh. pain management as it's, as it's you know, relating to opiates. But one thing that I've found from people both anecdotally, you just you know, talking with, with meatheads and, and, and young ladies, and also through research I've done is that ketogenic diets have a huge, huge, huge positive effect on inflammation and, and body pain and things like that. Have you found that that's even been further increased with eating only meat? Absolutely. Yeah, that's one of the one of the things that really fascinates me about this. And I put up this website, meatheals.com, and it's, it's just starting to get all these people that are demonstrating that things like rheumatoid arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, psoriatic arthritis, lupus, all these conditions that were considered basically, you know, autoimmune or you know, progressive diseases that you can't can't get rid of that require great de- great deals of pain medication, 
immunosuppressive drugs. These people are getting rid of these diseases just by going on these all-meat diets, which is totally crazy because as an orthopedic surgeon, all I would see is people with arthritis, no matter what the type it was, would always, always progress. You would manage it with medication, injections, finally surgeries, and even still, you know, then, then their other joint would wear out. And so what I'm seeing now is people are literally uh, almost curing these diseases, if I can use that term. I know it's a strong term to use, but it's fascinating to me. And it's not just joint pain, it's, it's psoriasis, it's like eczema. And the other thing that might interest you, Dr. Drew, is there are a lot of people that are claiming that their, their mental health has improved significantly. You know, they're, they're finding out that they can quit smoking, they can quit drinking, they can give up caffeine, they're giving up these addictive substances just because of the diet, which I think is pretty remarkable. Obviously, there's more work that needs to be done. We've got to figure out. We got to figure out what that is, because that, that, I, I don't, I don't not believe it. I, I just want to understand what it is, because it's you and I both know GI physiology is so fantastically complex that whatever this mechanism is, or whether it's an adjustment, uh, it's going to be a hard thing to figure out. But uh, I, 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 hmm, I, I, you know, the mental, the mental, the overlap between rheumatic disease and, and mental health is very complex, right? Uh, and pain and trauma and all, it all kind of goes in the same soup. Uh, why then would a, you know, this kind of diet, I, I almost wonder if it's just doing self-care. I don't know. I don't have an opinion. Right, so right. Figured out. Do you have any idea about, do you have any idea about the physiology yet? Do, we, do you have any hunch about that? Well, I think, That's you know, good. what I'm seeing consistently, you know, and, and again, this is in contrast to what the, a lot of the, what I call this propaganda about there is uh, people that go on this diet notice profound decreases in, in generalized systemic inflammation. We see that both clinically with things like joint pain and digestive health, but also in their laboratory studies. We're seeing people's C-reactive proteins plummeting. Uh, we're seeing their insulin status improve significantly, as long as other, you know, other markers of diseases like HDL, triglyceride ratios, blood pressure going down. And so I think those, I think my thought is most of these diseases probably share an underlying sort of basic cause. And, these, and that's why we see so much overlap between cancer and diabetes and heart disease and, you know, mental illness, all these things kind of share. They all, you know, if you look at the, you know, the, the associational studies are all kind of related. When one goes up, they all go up. And so I think when you can get, get at the heart of whatever's causing one to improve, generally those other things get better as well. And so it may just be, you know, maybe it's just systemic inflammation that's driving some of this mental health issues. And, you know, obviously there's a lot of, there's a lot of chemistry. I, I look at it as we don't know very much. I know we know a lot, but we don't know very much relatively. It's still kind of a black box. You know, we can, we can see the input. We can figure out what the output is. And I think, you know, we spend a lot of time. There's lots and lots of studies and lots of money that's poured into all these studies. And we find these little biochemical pathways and people try to make these big contextual leaps and saying that, you know, that applies to everybody in all situations, which we know is not the case. And so I always, you know, I always kind of cringe when I see these new studies come out and people think they've solved the problem and and that generates a bunch of supplement sales and, you know, people are no better off than they were, you know, five years ago. And so I think it's, uh, to me, I think it's a hard problem. To to, to, to that end, I I, want to talk about my own specific thing. And then Mike, after we talk about this one little thing I'm interested in, have Dr. Baker tell him the, the tell the audience the whole story here. His story is fascinating. Yep. I, I heard you tell it on. I, I literally I just got back from a run around the reservoir at Central Park. The last time I took that run, I was listening to your interview, <laughs> <laughs> just coincidentally with Joe Rogan. It was and it was it, I was enraptured by it. So I I'd love you to tell that story again. But but before you do, it, it, here's what occurred to me as I was listening to it. I, I have. Uh, bad genetics. I have a Lynch syndrome. Uh, my dad had 
all kinds of vascular disease, never smoked, never did anything like that, but he ended up with not just coronary disease later in life, but large vessel aortic thromboembolic disease. But you have so tremendous, had, something... tremendous penis genetics, Drew. I mean, let, let's not overlook <laughs> well, thankfully, that. Thankfully, let's not that, overlook uh, that. Thankfully, that's, yeah. You, you, with some, you know, there's always something good comes along with the bad. That's, <laughs> that's why it evolved. But anyway, but, but, but um, the, the, he, he, his whole life made it his point to pull all the fat off all the steaks. that We, we ate a lot of that kind of stuff growing up. All the fat. He'd everybody's fat. He'd eat it all the time, and he would do it with sort of gusto and uh, sort of massive denial that, you know, he was, had sort of his, his sense of the physiology was that this didn't matter and that it was all being overstated, and he's just going to eat fat all day, which he did. And your dad, had, your dad with, a physician too, right? Yeah, he was a family practitioner. And, and he ended up with a, a aorta that looked like the surface of the moon. He was, it, was, it was complete mess and started throwing microemboli to his head. So, and I have hyperlipidemia. I have essentially what we call the metabolic syndrome. And so my question is, are people like me, because I, I, I prefer to eat the way you're doing it, and I'm fascinated by the whole thing, are people like me at any kind of added risk? Or do we have to be looked at as a separate genetic subcategory that really we don't know whether this would be good for them or not? And now, I will, so let me just, a little, little corollary to that. You've already said that TRP goes down, insulin resistance goes down, and that should improve my syndrome, but I don't know. Who knows? We have to do those studies, probably. Well, I mean, obviously, no one can say with 100% certainty on any of this stuff. You know, it's a lot of it's, it's hard to predict what you're going to die of. And, you know, a lot of people will say, you know, you're going to get this or that 20 years down the road. You can never be sure about that. I think if we look at the evolving body of, you know, literature as it regards to cardiovascular disease in particular, we're seeing more and more of a trend towards underlying inflammatory disease, you know, obviously there's a mix with insulin in there, but then how that impacts and how that interacts with the different lipoproteins, you know, seems to be evolving. We're seeing that probably, uh, you know, there might be more to do with something called remnant, uh, remnant uh, cholesterol, which is kind of looking at your, uh, you know, your total cholesterol minus your HDL minus your, your LDL, and that gives you something called a remnant cholesterol, and that may be more predictive for heart disease. Now, again, these are gen- general population studies. We, you know, everybody has a little different, unique uh, situation. Uh, you can't say for sure. I will say that, you know, looking at people that do this, you know, and I've seen hundreds and hundreds of people's labs now as we're collecting this data, um, the majority of the people, like I said, they will notice improvements in their triglycerides and their HDL. You know, their triglycerides will go down, their HDL will go up. What happens with their total LDL cholesterol is variable. Some people will go up quite a bit. Some people, it won't move. Some people, it will go down. And I think there's an interesting, a really interesting fellow. He's, <clears throat> he's, he's an engineer that uh, was perplexed by this problem because he was on a ketogenic diet, and he felt great. You know, like he said, he was like, I feel the best I've ever felt in my life, and yet my total cholesterol is over 400. What he did was he. Oh boy! So what he did was he continued to take his own lab tests. Like every couple of days, he would draw his own blood. He just, you know, paid for paid for it because he was an engineer trying to figure this out. And what he figured out was, and this is interesting, that cholesterol was being trafficked in accordance to, to overall sort of energy balance in the body. So how much you've eaten, you know, if you've eaten a lot over the last four or five days, your liver is less inclined to send out fatty acids in the blood because it doesn't need to, and so cholesterol just kind of moves you know, in flux with that energy. So if you're full of, you know, if you're filled up with fuel, your liver doesn't have as much desire or need to send out the cholesterol. So what he was seeing is his cholesterol would change 100 points in a matter of three or four days, 
which to me is really fascinating because we make all these decisions with regard to medications on a single cholesterol reading, which we might get once a year. And if it can change 100 points in three or four days, you kind of have to put question into that stuff. So it's evolving. So I, I don't know the answer. I know that uh, to me, and, I, and I'm, I'm just a stupid orthopedic surgeon that hits stuff with a hammer, right? I mean, but to me, from a common sense standpoint, you know, if you go on a, on a whatever diet, exercise routine, and your joints get better, your digestion gets better, your libido gets better, your mental health gets better, your skin gets better, your body confidence gets better, everything gets better, right? And you feel great. And the only marker that goes up is cholesterol. You have to question, is that cholesterol really an indicator of disease in this situation, in this context, or is it maybe a red herring we need to look at something else? And so I think that's, you know, that's just a question. I'm going to bet it's a mix. I'm going to bet it's a mix. I'm going to, I'm going to bet that for some people it is and some people it isn't. And that, that it scared me early in life, and so I, I, I tried everything to get my stuff in line from a dietary standpoint, and I just took a whiff, a half of a quarter of Zetia, and it plummeted. So I'm a, I'm a cholesterol absorber, uh, and then I put a tiny bit of, uh, of Torvastatin or something in there, and uh, I started that early. It corrected everything, and my calcium score, you, you can do these tests that you know, sort of give you a... a an idea of what's going on in the line of your arteries. Again, my dad didn't have coronary artery disease. He had aortic vascular disease. It's a very specific genetic problem and kind of rare. Uh, and my calcium score is zero. So I feel like I've done something right, uh, and I could probably keep doing this and switch to your diet. You know what I mean? And yeah. that, I want to. I want to. I want a deadlift like you. That's well, what you, I'm more you, interested in. I'm you brought up cholesterol, <laughs> and that's what leading back to the yeah. The, the I know. Changes. I get it. I get it. No, no, no. But I was thinking about how you talked about the changes in mental health. We we began this conversation talking about how there at least anecdotally we're seeing. Um, uh, beneficial uh, reactions to the diet when it comes to mental health, anxiety, depression, things like that. Is there any correlation maybe to the fact that the the increase in dietary cholesterol is helping the hormonal profile? Uh, The testosterone is going up. And and, and, and we know that the hormonal profile has a huge profound effect on, you know, someone's mental health or at least in their in their mood, you know. Well, I mean, I would, like I said, I think that the, the point that Dr. Rume made was very important. I think that coronary artery calcium scan is, is very important because one of the problems I have, and people kind of criticize me for not jumping all over blood tests, as I say, they're so variable, they're so reactive, you know, to, to, to different things. And so the, the, the test like that where you're getting an imaging study or even a biopsy or something like that, that's going to give you a better idea of what's really going on where these blood tests are so transient. You know, like I said, I've tested all my blood. I'm, I'm going to talk about that on Rob Wolf's show in detail, but... I did several of them, and I could see things change dramatically in, in a period of a couple of days. If I worked out, my LFTs would go up. If I didn't work out, they'd be normal. And so it's, all these things that we take a lot of stock on in the blood, I think we kind of overreact to, and people get hung up on that. And you really need these, these really more definitive tests like coronary artery calcium scan or you know, some of the, you know, the, the, the vascular imaging in the carotid arteries or wherever it may be, or... You know, you can look at. I mean, and a lot of people think this doesn't this this doesn't matter, but I think body composition has a huge impact on our health, and I think having enough muscle has a huge impact on our health. And people, you know, that they criticize the diet, say, well, it's only about vanity, it's only about you know being strong. I said, no, that's important. Those are incredibly important markers of health as well, longevity and function. If you have, you know, there's quite a few studies out there showing that if you have poor quadricep strength, your longevity is shortened. So you need to maintain this stuff, and it's very important. You know, I know. Dr. Oh, that's Ray, interesting. 
Yeah, I don't know. Like I said, I'm in my 50s. I don't know how old you are now, Doctor, but it becomes very important as you get older. Is he 70? You look great for 70. <laughs> no, I'm in my 50s. I'm in my 50s, and, here, and here's, here's the, my, my screwed up stuff. Is um, weightlifting my whole life. You know, I, you, you mentioned some of those guys from the 70s. I used to work out at Bill Pearl's gym. I was around Dave. I can't remember all the name of those guys. Dave Johns and Bill Pearl. And, you know, the newcomers were Ferrigno and, and Arnold <laughs> back when I was around those guys. And uh, and they there was a lot of steak and eggs. There's a lot of low 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 uh, carbohydrate stuff going around then, and heavy 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 lifting. But I always had back problems and neck problems, and every time I'd go to work my legs, I'd start getting in trouble, and I could never afford a machine that would sort of work around that. Last time Mike and I did a podcast, who who was the convinced? Was Matt I'm Vincent, forgetting his name. Matt Vincent uh, convinced you to get mm-hmm. the uh, the reverse hyper. Yeah, Louis Louis Simmons hurt reverse well, hyper. He, yeah, he, I'm, I'm familiar with that. Yeah. Well, and he convinced me. He just convinced me to go get just do it. Just start lifting heavy. You got a power lift, and that's that. And I started doing it, and goddamn it, a lot of my joint stuff got better for a while. It's kind of waxing and waning now. But I definitely notice a difference and definitely feel better. Nice. Well, you're going to, you know, like I said, muscle is a metabolic sink, you know, and so you need to, you know, that muscle mass is going to protect you from metabolic disease, you know, and so it, it, you know, it's, it's important to do, you know, from my opinion, as an orthopedic guy, a strong joint tends to be a healthier joint than a weak joint. So even if you have joint issues, I, I still think you should figure out how to strengthen those joints. Now, whether it's one exercise that works pretty well for low back pain for a lot of people, and Stuart McGill is a big proponent of this, is a, is a kettlebell swing. And so I think that's a pretty effective exercise you might want to incorporate uh, as well for back health. All right. Yeah, that's heavy. Heavy. I do. I mean, you know, I swing a I swing a 176 pound kettlebell. Holy mackerel! Done it for 50 reps. Oh man. crap! I, I don't have I don't have room for that. No, no. But I mean, you know, you could, you, you could get one that's you know you get one that's 80 to 100 pounds. We'll build up to that and swing that for reps because you're I don't know how what are you about 210 something like that 220 I don't know what, how big you are. Weight? I know. I try to stay around 190. 190. Okay. Well, I mean, uh, something something around that weight, maybe 80 pounds, would be I think a reasonable one to play with. You might have to start lighter initially. Uh, learn some good form. You can just okay. do that. You can just do the Russian swing. You don't have to do the American swing. I think the Russian swing is just as effective and probably more effective in my view. See, Mike was trying me trying to get me to do the Turkish get-ups or whatever those things were called. The hell was that? Yeah, yeah the Turkish, Turkish get-up. Well, Mike. the only problem, and, I, and I, we we talked about this. Mike and I talked about this. You know, there that's a skill, right? Turkish get-up takes a while to learn that skill. You know, there's some core stability and some things you got to do some balancing, but it's like. I don't know, like eight or nine steps to do a Turkish get-up. Yeah. I've, done, I've done them in the past, can't remember. But So the question is, is your time better served doing something else? And, 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 you know, for me, with a kettlebell, I think swings are the best, most efficient, effective use of a kettlebell. Really, it strengthens the posterior chain. It gives well, you metabolic yeah, health. Well, yeah, yeah it has, so. you can condition with it. You can, get, you, know, you can build your glutes, posterior chain. You can get your abs going with that stuff. It helps with back rehab. Um, you know, but there's a lot of things you can do with a yeah. kettlebell, you know, certainly. And, you know, one of, the, one of the things that I've been fascinated about with you is that it, it, does, it makes perfect sense to me that you eat all meat and that uh, oftentimes it's fattier cuts and that's all you're eating and you can lift heavy. What doesn't seem to compute, just from my boneheaded view of training, is that you also dominate really what are traditionally looked at as very glycolytic things, like, like a 500-meter C2 row, uh, a 1,000-meter row. You kick super in fact you're a world record holder for masters how how have you been able to kind of bypass what most people look at as something you know a, a necessary carbohydrate activity like uh like c2 row you know rowing or or uh um some other things i've seen you do that are that are really really demanding on that energy system how have you been able to maintain that and not not only maintain it excel at it only eating meat yeah so i mean you know again i'll, I'll go back you know if we this i'll just 
kind of backstory a little bit. Please. Evolution. You know, if we look what humans evolved on, you know, and we can, we can go back to Homo erectus, and there's some pretty, pretty good anthropologic data on I this rented stuff. that. It's a that very sh- avant-garde, Homo erectus. Well, but I mean, <laughs> but they, uh, they show that, uh, you know, those guys probably were living, subsisting on mostly things like elephants and mammoths. Because if you look at it from a hunting perspective, what's going to get you the most bang for your buck? Mm-hmm. Going out and killing one of these 12,000-pound beasts, they knew how to preserve. They, it shows what they knew how to preserve the meat. It was very fatty meat. That's what we evolved on, largely, you know, and so it was a very efficient strategy because you kill one animal, you can live for six months. It's very easy hunting, you know, you know, once you figure out how to do this, and we clearly did. There are populations, the Gravedians in Central Europe, they killed mammoths like crazy, and that's what we did until, we, until those species basically went extinct, whether it was humans wiping them out or climate change, and so that was a natural tendency what humans were eating. Now, for me, it's just a matter of adaptation. I, I can tell you that you know, again, when I go over my blood work with Rob, you'll see why, you know, my glycogen stores are probably just as good as anyone else's. Um, you know, I probably burn more fat at a higher intensity. I think uh, Jeff Fullick and some other guys showed that with some of their studies at higher intensity levels than other people's do. And, that, and, it, and what happens with that is I don't get beat up as much metabolically because I'm, you know, using fat at higher intensities. Now, when I get to the very top ends, I'm probably definitely tapping into my glycogen stores. You know, weightlifting, like we said, the, you know, Single reps, double reps, it's all creatine phosphate system, mm-hmm. right? Once you get into that 30, 45 seconds, one minute, minute 30, you're, you're, you're really burning through glycogen, you know, you know, to do that stuff. And, yeah, I broke several world records. In fact, I broke, the, I broke 19 world records last year as a meat eater, you know, on the concept, too, just breaking it, breaking it, breaking, breaking my own record over and over again. But I found, for me, it was just a matter of adapting. And I think our bodies will do that. You'll do what... You know, the problem is all these ketogenic studies that they do where, where the people that say you got to have carbs is they shut them off at about three to four weeks. You know, they usually have the funding for that. They take some people, they take them, and they, cr- they try to adapt them. And most of the time, three to four weeks is barely enough to physically adapt to the diet. And then they say, well, they're at, their performance wasn't as good. There's, been, there's some recent studies out there that have been done at 12 weeks, and they're showing actually if you give them 12 weeks, these guys are actually doing better, and they're actually outperforming the carb-eating groups. And so for me, I felt it took me – when I went to a ketogenic diet, about six months to adapt. And then when I went on a full carnivore diet, it took me another further two months to adapt to that sort of different energy system. And then once I hit two months in, my strength started going up pretty pretty, pretty compressively. For someone who'd already been training for close to four decades, I saw about a, you know, I calculated about an 8% increase in strength, which is big. You know, sure. When you're already at the top, you know, at the top of your genetic potential. Wait, so, tell, tell your whole story. Tell, I, the way you told it for Joe, I really, you just painted a beautiful picture of what, what you... What you experienced? Please, please tell the whole thing. Um, as how you got to this? You know, you're, we're sort of piecing it together now. But tell, tell the arc. You know how you started with this, how you improved, what you thought about it, where you are now, and how you yeah, how you yeah, ramped I mean, it up. Yeah, I mean, so like I said, I've been you know I've been an athlete my whole life. I was you know you know I played rugby in New Zealand. I I did strongman competitions, powerlifting. You know, I was a close to an 800 pound deadlifter when I was younger. Drug, as a drug free guy, I hit a 772 and just missed a 783. Uh, you know, well, that was when I was in, that was in my medical school. I did that. And then I, then I was in third year medical school and, you know, then residency and then, you know, everything goes to shit cause you can't train as much, but, yeah. but then, so, right. so I was doing all this stuff and then I got in my mid forties and I'm sitting there and I, my blood pressure's going up. Uh, I'm not sleeping very well. I probably have sleep apnea. I'm probably 280, 285 pounds of that kind of, cause I was competing in Highland games like your last guest, Matt Vincent was, and you gotta be big. You gotta be a big guy to do that stuff. Um, and then I was having, uh, just, uh, you know, 
probably metabolic syndrome. I'm sure I did. You know, I'm, I, I didn't formally test it, but I'm, I have no doubt about it. And I was getting, you know, I couldn't lose body fat. I remember when I was 40, I was going to, I was going to say, I'm going to get some abs when I'm 40. Yeah. Didn't happen. You know, I dieted, I dieted, exercised, didn't happen. It happened when I was 48 after I switched to a, you know, a different diet. But so, but, but I just noticed that despite the fact that I was still, I was running sprints, lifting hard, training, doing everything I'm still doing now. And I, my body wasn't responding. I was just getting, you know, and you start to, and I was getting joint pain and I was starting to uh, just kind of accept the fact, yes, I'm not Superman. I'm getting older. You know, it's just the things that happen when you get older. And then, then I started saying, okay, at least I'm going to do a diet. And so what I did, I, you know, I, I did the low fat, almost vegetarian, you know, a little bit of lean meat, you know, a little bit of lean, it was mostly fish. I was listening to, uh, uh, who's ripped, you know, he, you know, uh, Tony Horton? No, 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 no. Uh, older guy. He wrote, he wrote, uh, he's a bodybuilder that wrote ripped Clarence Bass. Clarence Bass. Clarence Bass. And I went on Clarence Bass, you know, high fiber. He called it horse chaw. You know, he just yeah. load up on the fiber, eat all that stuff, almost vegetarian diet. And what happened is I lost weight. I got leaner. Um, I was working out like a maniac. I mean, I'd, go to, I'd get up in the morning before I went to work, you know, before I went to clinic, jump rope, hit 1,000, 2,000 jump ropes. And then I, I lived close to the hospital, so I'd drive back home, uh, get a weight, weight workout in, get back home, play with my kids, put my kids to bed, and then work out again, then do another bunch of jump ropes. So I was training three times a day. My caloric intake was dropped by 50% probably. I went from probably six, 7,000 calories a day because I was 280, eating that much, yeah, to, about, to about 3,000 3, calories, 2,500 calories. And I did that for about three, three to six months, maybe about six months. Dropped about fifty pounds, and I dropped fifty pounds in three months. I remember, and I was glad. You know, I was like, "Well, oh, cool, I can do it." But I mean, I was just not a happy camper. I was irritable. Um, you know, I was kind of pissed off at work. The nurses didn't like me. Um, you know, I was just hungry all the friggin' time, and I couldn't maintain that. And so. Then I was just like, after six months of this, I was like, I got to do something else because I'm a disciplined, athletic guy. I'm a competitive guy. You know, I've got discipline. I've got willpower. But, but this is just like constant gnawing hunger. Was it not does something you can see, live with. And I, you know, back in my bodybuilding days, the six, seven times a day, feedings a day, you know, mixture of, of low-fat protein and carbohydrates – it does seem so wildly unsatisfying that you even even if you haven't done any scientific examination of it, it feels like you are going against the grain of what your body wants. It cons because you like you said you're eating more than ever as far as frequency and oftentimes a lot of bulk, a lot of roughage, and you know the chicken breasts and whatnot. But you're constantly hungry and and you feel hormonally you don't feel very good. Like you know you're, you're tired even though even though you can't sleep you're tired. And libido goes to shit. It doesn't necessarily feel like, you know, just from a boneheaded point of view, like you're doing the right thing for your body, you know? Well, I mean, again, I, and we can go back to an evolution perspective. You know, if, if what I suppose is true, which, I, you know, and again, I have my – I wasn't there. I don't have a time machine. I can't say – I can look at some, what some of the evidence shows. It compels me to believe this. I don't think human beings spent their day eating six times a day. I mean, I just don't think it was. Imp- I just don't think it was practical. Yeah, practical. I, just think, I just don't think that was impossible. I think there's it was no impossible, way. and there's, there's no, no way, way. We, we. The only way we can yeah. do it now is because we have modern transportation systems, food storage systems. We have a snack culture. We have a huge, huge uh, processed food industry that's telling us to snack every two to three hours. You know, my kids are in school; they have to have a snack, or their brain falls off every two hours. I, uh, I, I didn't please. have that stuff when I was a kid. I mean, I made it through school without no. having to snack every. 
25 minutes, and now it's like being forced upon us, and I think it's just a disaster. Um, we have to take a real quick break, but we will, we will uh, start right back up with uh, Dr. Baker discovering the solution to all his woes in his mid to late 40s. Well, we're so pleased to have Hydrolyte back. Hydrolyte is something that we and my family use just about every day, and it is simply the best oral rehydration product I have ever seen. And there are many reasons you should keep some around. I got the flu. I relied on Hydrolyte because I knew it would rehydrate me the way an IV fluid would. We all have heard about the flus and the diarrheas, and they all knock you out. Staying well hydrated is critical to getting over these conditions. Even if you manage to avoid getting infected, your schedule is half as busy as mine. Getting eight glasses of water a day isn't likely to happen. And you don't need it if you've got the proper hydration product, Hydrolyte. That is the beauty. Whether you're sick or not, you can absolutely benefit from proper balance of sodium, glucose, and water. Hydrolyte does this better than a sports drink or water alone. That's right, better. It comes in great flavors like orange, berry, lemonade. It's available in a pre-mixed powder. My personal preference is a little effervescent tablets. You can simply drop in a bottle of water or a glass of water, and you're done. You got it, and you are rehydrated. And compared to sports drinks, Hydrolyte delivers up to four times the electrolytes with 75% less sugar. I know. Don't buy into the hype of the brands. Use Hydrolyte. It's a better product. I'm telling you, I had intended to invent it. They got there first, so I'm all behind them. Hydrolyte solutions are appropriate for all ages, and each bottle or package includes easy-to-follow dosing instructions. Order Hydrolyte today, hydrolyte.com slash drdrew. That is hydrolyte.com slash drdrew. And for a limited time, our listeners can save 30% on Hydrolyte. We actually buy in bulk in our family, so we're going to click through. Believe me, just click the banner on my site and use the code DrDrew18. That is D-R-D-R-E-W-18. All right, it is the Swole Patrol. Our guest today, Dr. Sean Baker. Go to meetheels.com. Dr. Drew joining us from New York City. So we were where we stopped, you were at essentially the point where you were following a more traditional kind of bodybuilder diet, low-fat, uh, moderate-carb, the whole thing, eating frequently, and you were miserable. And, right, and right. That, that's, uh, I guess, now you're, you're mid to late 40s. Yeah, I was probably about 45 at that point, you know, and, and I got, you know, I got lean. I lost about 50 pounds, but I, I was just, this is not sustainable for me. Started reading some of the paleo stuff, saw, saw some of Mark Sisson's stuff, thought, well, that sounds pretty cool. I did that, adopted it, had fun with that, felt remarkably better, I think, including more, just more animal protein, more fat in my diet, made me feel better, just both mentally and physically. Gym performance started to improve. Uh, at that point, you know, I just continued to read. I just started, I was fascinated by like Gary Taubes' book, Nina Teichel's book. You know, I started reading these things and it just sort of clicked with me. And then I started, you know, one of the things as a surgeon is, you know, we were constantly battling patients who were obese and we're constantly saying, you got to lose weight for surgery. You got to lose weight for surgery. You're going to have complications, infections, but they never lost weight. You would tell them to go lose weight, don't eat as much, exercise more, and they would might lose two or three pounds. And you know, this is a this is a female who's two hundred and twenty pounds at five foot four, and you got to get her down to whatever BMI of thirty five to operate on her. And they would lose, you know, a pound or two, or maybe five pounds. And then the next time you see them, they'd put it all back on, and they're in your office just crying because they can't lose weight. And finally, you say, okay, we're just going to do the surgery anyway. And most of the time, they do feel well. But I mean, again, you're putting at more risk, you know, because of infectious complications. Well, once I started doing this ketogenic stuff, I said, well, let's just try that. And then what I was seeing was, you know, generally a lot of them were losing weight, the ones that would do it. But the other thing that was more remarkable to me is a lot of them who we were setting up for surgery said their joint pain went away. And we were like, well, why the hell are we going to do do the surgery on you if you don't have any any knee pain? You know, so that was really remarkable to me. And I started seeing this over kind of frequently. And then I started 
you know, sort of changing my practice, um, you know, to, to, to kind of support that. And that wasn't, that didn't go over too well with administration. But anyway, I, I felt I was doing the right thing for the patients. Um, but back to my story, you know, I continued to, uh, you know, just kind of read, read, read. And then I kind of finally, um, just more out of curiosity, I said, I'm going to try this meat-only diet for 30 days. And I did it last December, you know, December 2016. I did it, I, I was in France with my, with my girlfriend's family, had, you know, the regular food, um, the last time I had a vegetable, I think it was a Brussels sprout, it was in 2016. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so I did that. I went on the diet and I mean, I literally just felt really, really good. And I said, well, this is kind of cool. And, and I'd had still had a little bit of chronic, uh, uh, quadriceps tendonitis that I'd had literally for something like a decade and a half. I'd always had this quad tendonitis. It would never go away. And as North Peak surgeon, you kind of know, what what the options are for tendonitis, and I tried everything, you know, eccentric stretching, you know, compression stuff, you know, all the, you know, all the things that I would tell patients to do, I would, you know, uh, and it never went away. It just always bothered me, and then I noticed about, you know, three or four weeks into this stuff that that just went away, and it's never come back, which is really shocking to me, but when I got done with the 30 days, I went back, and I said, well, I did the 30 days. That was fun. Um, you know, let's go back to your regular diet. And I did. And I started eating, you know, the regular kind of ketogenic stuff, kind of mix of stuff in there. Did that for a, you know, a day or so. And I just literally didn't feel as good. My digestive health wasn't good. Uh, I had some aches and pains start to creep back. Um, you know, my mood and my energy was just not as good. And I said, well, I personally, I just rather feel good. So I went back to this crazy all meat thing. And then I've just been doing it now for 15 months. And the weird thing is I continue... I mean, like the deadlifts I did yesterday. I mean, that's a PR for me. I mean, coming back, or at least a PR in the last decade. You know, it was 500-something for 10 reps? It's 505 for 10. It was, I could have probably done 15, I think. Oh, you know, that's I mean, impressive. Was, you know, so, I mean, it was, uh, and it was no belt. You know, it was a trap bar, so it's kind of, you know, trap bars are a little easier than a, than a, than a regular bar. But uh, Yeah, but only because you're incorporating different muscles. It's not as if you're not lifting 505 pounds. I mean, it's still darn impressive. Right, yeah, right? I, mean, it's still, I mean, it's still a decent lift. I mean, there's not a lot of 50-year-old guys, 50 guys. And, again, I don't take steroids. I don't take testosterone. I don't do any of that stuff. So there's not a lot of guys my age that can do that stuff. And, like I said, I can, I can still dunk basketballs. Uh, because my joints don't hurt, which is, I think, an effect of the diet. I can train real hard. My recovery is really good. I mean, um, I can, you know, I can, I can, I guarantee I can walk in the gym and do 500 for 10 again today without any difficulty, even though I did it yesterday. I mean, that's what I found. I found when I was breaking world records on the concept, too, I could break them day after day. One day I'd break the record, the next day I'd break the record again right. because the recovery has been so tremendous. And this is what we see in the historical accounts of the, you know, the, the Eskimo or the Inuit population. People would say they had remarkable physical capacities to, to just continue to, to do work and that's what i'm finding and it's you know now that now that this is becoming a little bit of a thing where people are trying i'm getting a lot of a, you know athletes on instagram telling me man i'm hitting all these prs in the gym my training is crazy i have recovery i can recover for days you know i, I don't have any you know it, it's it's pretty bizarre you know it's uh you know i think it's you know to me i think it's a little less metabolically beat doesn't beat you as up as much than another nutritional strategy does. And I think nutrition is just, in my view, very optimal. I think we are optimally designed to digest and process meat. You know, I think that's just what humans really do well. I mean, if we look at it, again, I make this argument that we are apex predators, which we clearly are. I mean, we can kill and eat, and we have eaten every animal on the planet. It's not that I'm advocating that we do that, you know, but that's what humans did. We've demonstrated that capacity. And what does an apex predator eat? They pretty much eat meat. You know, and it's more efficient. You know, plants have 
you know, there's some nutrients in there, but they're harder to get at. They come with anti-nutrients. They have a lot of phytochemicals that are, you know, we talk about phytonutrients, but there's a lot of things like oxalates and salicylates and phytates and, uh, you know, cyanides and, you know, gly- you know, glycol- you know glycolytic alkaloids and all these are glycoalkaloids and all these other things that may have a negative consequence. You know, we don't really look at that because we have this epidemiology that we've sort of taken as face value. The epidemiology is really based on bad science. You know, if we look at uh, what the body of knowledge is about where we think fruits and vegetables are good for us, is it's mostly epidemiology. We have some isolated plant compound studies on isolated biochemical processes. But when you look at the data where it's actually, we, let's give an, our, a randomized controlled trial of people eating fruits and vegetables, human beings, and see what happens. There's only about 20 of those studies that have actually been done. Half of those showed a negative outcome. The other half showed a positive, and it tended to be fruit was a little more beneficial than vegetables. And then Dr. George Ede, who's a psychiatrist, uh, uh, who's doing some brilliant work on this stuff, has, has demonstrated that and went through all the, all the research and done that. So I want to give her credit on that. But So we don't have just, again, most of our nutritional knowledge, or what we call dogma, is really based on some shaky shaky uh, foundation. Oh, for sure. For sure. That, that's the sort of Mike and my credo. Is that uh, you know th- things that is dogma? It, it just it disregarded essentially. One of the main factors of the um, all meat diet that Dr. Drew uh, was very much in support of uh, for a while now, and I still don't really understand it. In, you know, from a layperson's point of view, how is it that you're so regular? I'm I'm on two weeks now. I'll just be finishing up two weeks of eating uh, the carnivore diet, and I've been following along with you on at the carnivore diet. Uh, uh, your your training protocol at, 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 with the carnivore diet, I my poo is fine, and I you know not to get too descriptive, but I, I have always thought, hey, to have, to be regular, you need fiber, and I'm eating zero grams of fiber, and uh, I'm doing fine. I know you're doing fine. Uh, Chris Bell, our mutual friend, talks about how he's booping just fine. What is it about the human body that can become regular without fiber, and why is it that we've been told? For so long that fiber is essential to regularity. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean, the the benefits for fiber go back to the 1960s. Dr. Burkett, whose who's, whose name is synonymous with Burkett's lymphoma, observed African populations, and he was looking at the fact that they were generally happier. These indigenous African populations were generally healthier than the, the Western populations. And what he noticed was they ate a little bit more fiber than we did. So he basically said fiber is necessary in the diet because of that. Now, what he didn't what he didn't sort of comment on was the fact they ate no processed food and sugar at the time, which, <laughs> right. you know, Dr. Yudkin and some of these other guys that were the sugar guys said, no, wait, that's the reason. But that, that, that sort of fell out of favor. You know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of stuff about how the sugar industry might have sort of influenced dietary policy through some backhanded techniques. But, um, you know, fiber, you know, is something that will fill up your colon. There's no doubt about it. You'll have bigger poops. You'll have more poops. Is that an advantage in the grand scheme of thing of life, I don't think there's any real great data that supports that. Um, you know, there's some epidemiology that shows people that eat more plants and vegetables, you know, have some better uh, outcomes health-wise. But again, this, the epidemiology is so confounded, you know, because you have these people that eat meat. Most people that eat meat are at McDonald's eating the burger, fries, the shake, the Coke, and that's where we get these meat eaters from. This is who, who the epidemiology people are comparing to. They're not looking at me, a guy who works out, cares about his health, I mean, I care about my health. I'm not doing this stuff because I'm I'm I have a suicide mission. I honestly think I'm getting healthier this way. And I would argue, you know, at least on a performance standpoint, and, and what I feel is healthy, I'm healthy. But fiber, the benefits of fiber are contextually based upon what the rest of your diet is. You know, so what does fiber do? 
it lowers your cholesterol. There's some studies that show that. Now, the question is, is that truly important or not? I think there's debate about that. The other thing that fiber does is it blunts the glucose you know, spike. You know, so if you eat an apple, you're going to have less of a glucose spike than if you drink apple juice, right? Sure. Because the fiber mitigates that. If you're on a carnivorous diet, it's a moot point because you're not taking in the sugar anyway, right? So it has no, no glucose. For, yeah. You're taking no glucose in there. Now, as far as bowel regularity, you know, what happens to a lot of people is, and this is, a, this is another horrible, horrible myth that's been perpetuated, meat does not sit there and rot in your colon. You know, we have ileostomy patients that have clearly demonstrated, you know, if you look at an ileostomy patient, an ileostomy patient is a patient who's had their colon removed for whatever reason, you know, cancer, uh, diverticulitis or something like that. And if you look what comes out of the ileostomy pouch after they eat meat, it's just a little bit of liquid. Okay? That's why a lot of people on a carnivorous diet actually have diarrhea, not constipation, because they just have liquid that comes out there. So there's no real material. And then, and then the colon's job is just to reabsorb some of the uh, water from the, from, the, from the liquid and, and, reg- and, and adjust some uh, minerals. Uh, but what, the other component of your poop is bacteria. You, you still have bacteria in your colon. It's just the bi- microbiome changes a little bit. So what you're getting is you know, whatever, whatever residual amount of uh, material you can get after you absorb the water from the, from the meat and then the bacteria mixed in, and you have, you have regular poops. They're smaller or they're less frequent. My five-year-old kid... His poop is about six times the size of mine, you know, right. and I eat five pounds of meat a day. And, you know, I'm looking at the guy and he eats, you know, fruits and vegetables still. And he's, he's like, he'll, he'll fill up the whole damn bowl. And I'm like, damn, kid, where'd you get that? But I mean, you know, and so it's, you know, the other arguments about fiber, you know, there's some good, interesting studies on chronic constipation and patients that have, you know, how they've dealt with it. And so there's some, some neat studies that show that people that go on low fiber or zero fiber diets actually resolve their con- chronic constipation. Their symptoms of gas, bloating, and so on and so forth go away when they get rid of fiber in their diet. And that's what you'll see now with the thou- many thousands upon thousands of patients that do this diet. They say that they no longer have dis- discomfort with digestion. They no longer have flatulence. They no longer have uh, you know, bloating or gas. People with Crohn's disease are getting rid of symptoms of Crohn's disease or getting rid of symptoms of ulcerative colitis, which I think is tremendous. Irritable bowel syndrome, many of those people are noticing significant improvements. Uh, there's other studies. There's a guy named Peary. Dr. Peary did a colonoscopy series on about 1,400 patients, and he stratified those into quartiles looking at fiber content and diverticula. Diverticula are those little outpouches that come from the colon that will later become blocked up and, and cause diverticulitis when they get infected or, or inflamed. He saw that the people ate the most fiber and had the most bowel movements had the highest incidence of diverticula, which, again, it goes counter to what we've been told based on the epidemiology study. But I think when you actually look at this stuff, you know, critically, you know, I think we have to, again, question some of our, some of the stuff we've kind of swallowed as, as, as gospel for, for decades now. The other surprising aspect. Yeah, I, I Go think, ahead, Mike, Mike, can you hear me? Yeah. I, I was going to say that, that I, I agree with everything uh, that they're saying, and I'll even jump on a little harder and say that, you know, the human, and particularly American and British preoccupation with their bowel movements is bizarre. <laughs> and you're no exception, Mike. I love it. Your yeah. colon just pulled... Your colon just pulls water out of your stool, and maybe maybe the bacterial sort of makeup of the colon has something to do with something. We don't really know that yet, but there might be something there. And, you know, a certain amount of certain kinds of fiber may affect that, but you're really talking about a therapeutic intervention for somebody that has something going on, which is really what bulk is used for, really. things like psyllium husk, that kind of thing. 
those are therapeutic interventions. Now, the meat diet could also be a therapeutic intervention for similar stuff, but uh, you, you know, the generalizing about about both. Again, it's been way overstated, as you know, Mike. So many dietary things have been overdone, sure. uh, and I, I have diverticulitis and diverticulosis. Bulk has helped me with, you know, I was having multiple recurrences. Bulk helped me. That's sort of the trend, standard GI intervention for that. But again, the meat diet could help me maybe more. Who knows? Well, I mean, you know, again, I just look at it from just a mechanistic point of view. You know, if, if the only thing that's coming out of your small intestine is liquid. You know, I just don't see how yeah. that contributes to diverticulitis. You know, I think diverticulitis are these little seeds and things are indigestible that get caught up in these uh, these pouches. And so... Uh, it, it, it probably doesn't work like that. It pro- probably doesn't work like that. And, and I know I get diverticulitis essentially when I'm fatigued. Something happens. I don't know what the hell it is. But I, do, I did notice that... I mean, not fatigued, like severely overworked and not sleeping and that kind of thing. And uh, and they started kicking up as a post-surgical phenomenon after a prostatectomy, so I don't know what the hell that was. But be that as it may, it, it uh, has gotten better, and it's not diet-related for me. Uh, and, and I want to go back to Mike and his preoccupation with his poo. This is the other part you need to know, Dr. Baker. <laughs> is, Mike, the poo sits there until, at your convenience, you put it out. That You don't have to go running to the bathroom like some sort of child who hasn't yet con- figured out how to control his bowel movements. It's something that can wait until you're ready, and then you go ahead when you have an opportunity and do your thing. It doesn't affect your health. Maybe you can because you had a robot rip your prostate out and your butthole's nice and wide from years of use. But me, I have a tight little apple, and you know when I get a log pushing at it, Drew, it's got to be dealt with immediately. It's got to be dealt with ASAP, okay? So that's, just, that's the deal. Um, what... One of the things that I've found fascinating with you in particular, uh, Dr. Baker, is that you don't eat just meat. You eat a fuck ton of meat. You Like you were saying, five pounds a day is an average uh, day for you. How is it that uh, not only you, but many of the people that you uh, put up on Twitter that, you know, that are showing great results, they're, they're losing weight in what has to be a hypercaloric state? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, my average is probably four pounds a day, but it'll go up to six some days depending on my training. It's kind of interesting. My appetite will respond to how I'm training. If I'm training particularly hard, you know, it's like you would imagine, like you like it wouldn't make sense. And so I think, you know, again, I'm not going to dismiss the importance of calories to some degree. I mean, you, you know, you know, if I were to eat 12 pounds of steak a day, assuming I could do that, you know, if I could force myself to do it, I would probably gain weight and probably gain body fat. But I think, you know, we have this natural, again, I think human beings are animals. I know it's crazy. I know it's, her, her, you know, her, 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 heretic, heretic, hereditary to say that. But, um, you, know, you know, humans are just animals and we respond to our appetite. If, our, if we're eating the right food, our appetite should regulate when we're supposed to eat and how much we're supposed to eat. And I think, you know, one of the things that's interesting, I know uh, Jose Antonio has done some studies on protein overfeeding studies. And I know he's, he's taken a group of uh, resistance trained men. One group, one arm, they gave them you know a normal amount of food. The other arm, they gave them an extra 200 grams of protein, which is an extra 800 calories a day. And they, they ran them through for, I don't know, six, eight, 12 weeks. And they noticed the guys that got the extra protein gained no additional weight, you know, even though it was, they were in more of a caloric surplus. And yeah. so I think protein uniquely has some metabolic uh, differences in the way it's processed. Now, 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 every calorie you eat doesn't, every morsel or gram of food you eat does not go into converting into calories. Some of it's used for structure. You know, again, those amino acids are not converted immediately into caloric energy. Some of them are directly incorporated as, as structural elements. So how much of that occurs, I don't know. The other thing is some people will notice that they 
you know, they just feel warmer, you know? And so again, I cannot control my body heat. It's not a voluntary process. So the calories in, calories out, those things don't go into the equation. So you can't, you can't control all these other metabolic processes that are going go on that are involuntary. So I think the hormonal impact uh, of different types of, you know, foods has an impact on that. And I think meat, you know, has a favorable profile. And there are, you are absolutely right. And again, I don't, I can't explain it. I'm not trying to, but there are incidents of people that would normally seem to be dramatically in a calorie surplus and they're losing weight and getting leaner, you know, on this. And again, I know there's a lot of people that will complain about that, but it's just, it is what it is. And yeah. I, and I don't know, you know, I'm not smart enough to know all the details about the metabolism. I don't think anyone is. And I think that's the point. The people that think they know everything, I would say, you don't know everything. Well, I also, I've, I've suspected that when it comes to a, a high-protein, high-fat diet, the satiety is is so much greater than when you're eating, uh, you know, a carb-based diet that you're, even if you're going to overeat, it's going to be to a lesser extent than if you were having a loaf of bread. I mean, people grossly underestimate how much they overeat when they're eating things like uh, bread and potatoes and, and rice. Um, it just gets so easy to get it to a thousand calories over where you normally your basal metabolic rate. It's pretty hard to overeat steak and butter. I mean, it really is not that. It's really difficult sometimes to stuff yourself because it's so satisfying. Well, I would say the the steak part is the butter. You can you can quickly get a lot of calories in through butter because it's concentrated fat, and I think it's you know less nutrition. But I think you know again, what did human beings eat fifty thousand years ago? They weren't eating. All this other stuff they were eating, right. probably fatty cuts of meat, and yeah, I mean it's it's hard to it's hard to do that consistently day in and day out. Now you may be able to gorge for a day or two, but three days later you're going to be like, man, I'm full. I yeah. can't, I can't because I think again, I think our body will naturally regulate this stuff. Now the problem is with the 99 percent of the people out there, our diet, our human diet right now is not designed for humans, and the food we eat is so devoid of any nutrition. I mean, it's calorie dense, but it's not particularly nutrition dense. And so what happens is you eat all this food, you know, eat the, the Pringles potato chips or the Lay's potato chips, <clears throat> and you can't stop eating them. Well, that's because you're not getting any damn nutrition. You're getting the calories, but you're not getting the, the micronutrients, the vitamins, and things like that that your body's asking for. Um, is there any, you know, now doing this for such a, a prolonged period of time, is there any supplementation or, or any other foods as an adjunct that you think you might add in to, to, for a more optimal re- result? Anything like – I was thinking of uh, game meats. You know, a lot of people don't eat them, but uh, something like a desiccated liver or fish oil, something along those lines. It doesn't deviate too much from animal flesh only. Viscera. Viscera are important. Uh, there's no doubt that uh, organ meats are uh, – you know, nutrient dense. I mean, liver concentrates, you know, vitamin A, vitamin C, all these other things. Uh, kidneys, you know, the, the thymus, the, the other sweet breads, the organ meats are definitely nutrient dense. And I think there are people that have issues absorbing nutrients. You know, there are people like gastric bypass patients are a classic. I mean, we create these people. And I think, you know, my view on gastric bypass surgery is, gosh, it seems like a... Not something I'd, I'd recommend for many people. I think there's very few people that really should should pursue that you know and i know that's controversial but uh, but you create a state of, of, of a situation where people just no longer for the rest of their life can absorb certain nutri- nutrients and so those people might benefit from higher levels of nutrition i think people that start out particularly nutritionally challenged can benefit from organ meats i think once you get to where you're kind of topped off i don't know that you need that for maintenance i think some people will find that electrolyte supplementation will help particularly in the beginning you know as they're transitioning i still use a lot of salt 
Uh, I salt load before I exercise right now. It's something that, uh, you know, I don't know if you know Mark Lobliner. You know, I mean, a, know of him, yeah. Yeah, so he's, he's a bodybuilder doing, doing a carnivore diet now, and he's, you know, he sells a lot of whey protein, so he's got he's to take whey protein, which I think uh, you don't really need it. But, but he, you know, he's, he's worried about his pump because he's a bodybuilder. And I said, you know, let's make sure your electrolytes are topped off because it's, the pump is mostly is water, right? Mm-hmm. And, and what, what helps with water is, you know, electrolytes. And so if you take enough electrolytes, you're going to have intravascular water, you're going to have extravascular, you know, you know, intracellular water. It's going to be up. You know, one of the things that's interesting about glucose and why the carbs probably do this is because if you look at the effect of glucose and stimulating insulin and insulin's effect on the renal handling of electrolytes, the net effect is a reabsorption of sodium. And so it's probably the water from the carbs and the electrolytes that's directly responsible right. for this pump. So these guys are noticing, as long as I keep my electrolytes topped off, I get these big, you know, vascular pumps when I'm bodybuilding. So that's a question I get all the time. I don't really, my interest is not so much in bodybuilding. It's more about health because I think the more fascinating stuff about this is people getting rid of diseases. You know, the, the performance stuff is cool. It's neat. It's nice. People are doing that. But, you know, the, you know, the, the, the fact that people are getting rid of Crohn's disease or getting rid of rheumatoid arthritis to me is particularly exciting is what keeps me motivated on doing this but as far as other supplements going um i don't think fish oil is necessary you know most of the fish oil you buy in the capsules they get oxidized you know the quality is a concern if you're really worried about eat a piece of fish you're going to be better off eating a fatty piece of fish you know where its source may be an issue for some people but game meats can be fine the one problem with game meat you know particularly you know i know joe rogan's a big fan of game meat but one of the issues of game meat is it's often not fatty enough, you know, for if that's super lean, not, yeah, yeah, it's really lean, and so you can't survive on that for long periods of time. Now, bodybuilders, as you know, will go through a cut where they'll lean meat, you know, they'll really do that for a long chicken breast, you know, the typical bodybuilder, they'll get lean, but once you get down to whatever four or five percent body fat, life is not so good for very no, long. it is not, and you can't tolerate that that long, and so that's what lean meat does to you on a chronic basis. That's why human beings need. That's why we have essential fats. Human beings need fat in their diet chronically. Now. I'm you know relatively lean, but I'm not bodybuilder lean. But I'm sitting there eating four or five pounds of steak a day. But I think and you're you're more of what is appealing to men and women as far as the physique goes. What you have obtained at age fifty two, fifty fifty one at age fifty one is far more appealing than a four or five percent body fat bodybuilder. Which, I, as I pointed out, I say I'm not a man of science, but I I know that if you get your body into a condition where women have no period and guys have no boner. That can't be good. Yeah, that can't fucking be well, good. And, I, and, I, and, I, and just, just, you know, I wake up every day with a damn rock hard erection at four thirty. Very, very, very. Fifty one, and you know, it's like, and it's like, and yeah, my libido is great, and my performance is good. And like I said, I'm doing it sure for is. function, and that's what I'm. If I were to get down to six percent body fat, which I probably could if I really wanted to, my performance would fall off, and that's not what I'm shooting for. Well, so. I, the the impressive thing about you is there's not a lot, but there's plenty. If I went around, especially at Gold's Gym in Venice where I train, there's plenty of guys in their 50s who lift super heavy. Yeah. But they are hunched over, and they can't uh, they can't walk upstairs. Um, you are dunking basketballs. You have uh, what looks like sometimes doing like sixty inch bo- uh, box jumps. <laughs> I mean, uh, unbel- and then uh, we've already pointed out the amazing uh, power endurance feats on the on the Concept Two rower. Is that why you found it so important to incorporate things like med ball work and jump squats to 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 keep that kind of 
power movement going. Yeah, I mean, and I, and I see that. I see the guys, the older guys that are, you know, a lot of them are taking, uh, they're taking some drugs and stuff sure. like that to get big and strong, and they're and they don't move very well. You see them, they, they you know, they're strong, they can bench a lot, but they just don't look like they're very comfortable. They don't move particularly well. I, I don't think they could run very fast if you asked them to. Maybe some of them could. But I think, you know, again, this is, again, I, lo- I love using these animal al- analogies and people think I'm an idiot for it, but I'll do it anyway because I think that, uh, you know, if we look at an animal, you know, if I'm a lion, I'm going to hunt through a pack of animals. Which one am I going to take out? I'm going to take out the slow, weak one, right? I'm sure. going to look for one that can't run very fast. And I think, again, as human beings, we should be able to move quickly as long as we possibly can. And that, and in order to do that, you know, let, I use this example. Let's say a 100-meter dash. Okay. Let's say I say if you can't run run a hundred meter dash as a male in under fifteen seconds, you're going to get eaten by a bear or a lion, or you're going to get chronic disease and die. You know. And I think it's kind of the same thing. And we ask, what does it require to run a hundred meter dash in, in fifteen seconds? By the way, fifteen seconds is a world record for the eighty five year olds. Okay. So if you can, so as a fifty year old, I can't be an eighty five year old guy. I'm kind of pissed off. Sure. So Got to be able to do this. I need to go out and run a hundred meter dash because I keep talking about this stuff, but. Um, but what does it take to run a 100-meter dash in 15 seconds? One, you can't be a fat ass. You know, if you've got a big, giant gut and you're, you've got 50 pounds extra gut, you're not running that fast. Nope. Your joints can't hurt. If your joints are hurting you, it's going to be hard to do that. What seems to help joint pain is diet. Clearly, I'm seeing that over and over again. So get your diet in line. What else does it take to, to run uh, you know, uh, that fast? Is you've got to have the requisite amount of strength. If you're not fast enough, you know, look at sprinters. These guys are strong. They're, they're jacked. They can they can produce the power. You got to have the strength to do it. And then it's the application. You know, and that's why jumping, running, and practicing those things is so important. So that's why I just look at it in that sense. Now, interestingly, humans when they hunt animals, they take the big, huge, fat animals. That we well, we have guns. That's why. Well, but I mean, even 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 indigenous tribes when they're hunting with spears and stuff like that, they'll they'll because they know they need the fattest animals. Sure. So they'll hunt that. But regular animals, lions and what's up, they'll go for the skinny, weak ones and eat the old ones. It makes it makes a lot of sense, Drew. Anything else on your end? He might have dropped off. I think we lost. I, I, oh, no, he's do, you have, what, do I have questions on my end? Yeah. Do you have any other questions or any other? Well, I, I have a bunch of them. Absolutely. I'm sort of Please. Notes as we go here. Um, uh, have you heard of these these sort of genetic testing kits now that are available for sort of muscle performance and dietary recommendations? I, I know it's in its infancy. I know it's a lot of it's inferential. I'm waiting for I, my I'm results. I did I did fit DNA, yeah, and I'm I, waiting for my results. Right. Uh, and I did fitness genes, and, and I and I told Mike anecdotally, uh, it, it confirmed everything that I knew about for sure my muscle performance. The dietary stuff, I, I don't even remember what he told me. It was not it was not that useful. I didn't think. But it the, was mostly just I think stuff, you recommended that you the most about. the muscle performance muscle performance issues in terms of you know what I was designed to do fit my entire life of weightlifting, and I've had trainers my entire life trying to pull me away from what I do naturally. And so when we, you know, we were talking our last podcast about going back to powerlifting, that also fits with what I am genetically. And lo and behold, I am now better just adding a couple powerlifts in. Uh, yeah, I'm aware of some of the some of the some of the genetic stuff with, uh, you know, what what sort of exercise is supposed to benefit people. I don't know, you know, much beyond just being aware of it. You know, like I said, I'm sure that it's going to have some effect. I think there's some general truths from most most people. I think everybody's going to benefit from some form of strength training. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, you know, you probably, it makes sense to do some sort of conditioning. I mean, those are just some sort of general things, you know, as far as how you tailor that, how much you put into that, how much of that. Because a lot of this, like 23andMe stuff, you know, it's it's almost, 
for entertainment purposes only. I mean, a lot of people do this stuff, and, and the, the information is not particularly useful. You know, if it's going to show you you're going to get Huntington's disease, you know, that might be useful information. But some of this stuff on what diet to eat, uh, you know, all these other things that, that, that don't necessarily hold up under real-world world circumstances. And so, um, you know, you know, it'd be interesting. I'm, I'm open to, to see how that works. I mean, again, if I get a genetic test, hopefully it's going to say I'm a human being, and I'll say right. eat a damn steak and lift heavy, and that's, what, and that's well, what's going to happen for me. The reason I, I got sure into it, that, though, <laughs> the reason well, I got into say, it I, was I, like I thing, wanted to find out. Jump, Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was the one thing that jumped out at me was in terms of, you know, I have all this slow twitch, you know, the low rep, high, high intensity, big, big weight was sort of what I was suited up for. And he said specifically, they told me there's something about my speed where I could be quick, but it ran, I, I somehow couldn't use energy beyond a few seconds. And so I would uh, not be fast. And I said, Jesus, that was my entire football career as a high school student. I was the fastest person off the line. I could get into the backfield before anyone had gotten out of their stance yet. And then if, if they took three steps away from me, I was over for me. I just watched the play go by. That was it. You should have been a and, shot and putter then. To it. <laughs> I did do shot putting. I did do a lot of that kind of stuff. I wasn't quite big enough for that, but, but I did do that kind of stuff. And, uh, yeah, I, I should, what I should have done is trained for, like, a discus or something. That would have been perfect. It's, it's, it, that's exactly why I wanted to get the testing was not necessarily to figure out what diet's the best – What's my breakdown of fast twitch and slow twitch? How how do I uh, metabolize caffeine? I mean, is it even a good idea for me to be taking stimulants? Uh, you know, and that's an, that's another thing I actually wanted to talk to you about. Is uh, you know, what's your take on things like coffee, black coffee, and um, and because I know you're a big you know on Twitter, it's meat and water, stick to it. But are, are you a fan <laughs> of uh, are you a fan of you know black coffee things that don't have any caloric? Value, yeah, I mean, but, so I mean, my, you know, I, I, I'm kind of a weird guy. I never really enjoyed coffee. Mm-hmm. I never liked it. You know, I got through whatever military and medical school and all that residency. That's the, the most blasphemous training. thing you've said. I know, I know, <laughs> I know. I know but, but here, you know, what what I think is, you know, what I'm seeing because observing people, some people do fine with it. Mm-hmm. You know, I think some people will use coffee as an appetite appetite suppressant, and they'll use it in that capacity. You know, I know there's a big craze about the, you know, putting fat in your coffee and doing that and, and, and fasting that way. I'm not a big fan of fasting in in, in 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 the in the context of a nutritious diet. I think it helpful. It might be helpful if you're eating junk food, but um, you know, I think that uh, caffeine for some people, you know, there's 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 thoughts that it may interfere with certain mineral absorption. You know, mm-hmm. so caffeine may have that effect on people. Obviously, it's a stimulate. Obviously, it has a performance enhancement for many people. We know that you can exercise at a higher intensity to lower heart rate with caffeine. I played with it a little bit. I was taking caffeine pills. I didn't see a big, huge improvement in me, and I just said I, I don't need it. So, uh, But I don't really – I'm kind of agnostic about whether you should do coffee. I think you should test it, certainly test it out, yeah. see how you do with it. I tell people, you know, don't make coffee your meal. Make steak your meal or steak and eggs your meal. Have your cup of coffee on the side with it. If you really enjoy the cup of coffee, you like the mouthfeel, you like the – aroma, whatever, you know, the ritual that goes around coffee. You know, sure. A lot of people have a ritual with that. But make it as part of your meal. Don't make it your meal because that, what happens there is, again, my again, I don't think this carnivore diet is about weight loss. I mean, a lot of people lose weight. A lot of people get lean. We're seeing that. But my whole underlying point is it's about nutrition. And so if you're hacking your appetite, trying to avoid eating when you're hungry and using caffeine to do that, to me, I think that's a net negative in the long term. Because, you know, what happens when you go on a calorie-restricted diet? 
it sucks. Right. You fail. You end up with a face full of, in a, in a face down in a, in a piece of chocolate cake. And I think so. it's it's dysfunctional psychologically. I think it's dysfunctional to try to restrict yourself consist- constantly. Um, I do think there's some upside maybe to like the the grit aspect of it. You know, feeling the hunger and embracing it. But but like you pointed out, if you're constantly trying different tactics to reduce your hunger, to not feed yourself nutrients that you need, there's something kind of dysfunctional about that. You know. Yeah. I mean, I have a question. I, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, question. I wonder how you get your meat. How do you get 5 pounds of meat in? What, what is that? How do you do that? I know you were talking to Joe about that, and I, I thought that was interesting. And I noticed you mentioned eggs more than I've heard you mention in the past today. Is that just coincidence, or, or are, you, are you going more in the egg, egg direction? No, I mean, I, you know, when I started, uh, first day when I was a ketogenic diet, I ate a ton of eggs. I mean, I would eat up to a dozen, maybe even 18 in a day. I mean, I ate lots and lots of eggs. As I've gone farther and farther, I just find, to me, you know, just from a – you know, satiety standpoint, eggs just don't do it as much, and so I, I just don't crave it. I know it's crazy to think you only crave one thing after a period of time. For me, I've kind of dissociated myself from the entertainment value of food, and it's just about nutrition for me at this point. Again, I'm in my 50s. I've eaten every cut of food that you can you can have, and I've had all 31 Baskin-Robbins flavors. Nothing's, nothing is that exciting to me more. I'm not waiting for the you know, the next flavor of Doritos to come out. But for me, eggs, again, they're a very nutritious uh, uh, food. I think they're great. I think you, you, you can have them. Generally, the capacity that I tell people to eat them is eat them as an accompaniment to the meal, uh, to the meat. You know, like steak and eggs is a good, is a good, uh, is a great breakfast. Bacon and eggs, that's a great breakfast in my mind. Um, but I find, for me particularly, if I just eat a bunch of eggs by themselves, I'll get gastrointestinal upset. I mean, it'll, it'll just mess me up huh. a little bit. And so I, I find if I eat three or four eggs with a steak, I'm fine. If I go eating a dozen eggs, which is, you know, pretty normal for me, I won't do so well the next day with that. And so, uh, but eggs are fine. I think there's no, no problem with eggs, you know. And like I said, again, this is, I don't try to be dogmatic. I'm not a, a you know, sort of a, I know there's certain dietary things where there's a lot of religious sort of context where, you know, there's a lot of people, particularly with some of the plant-based diets, people really have a lot of other things that go on besides just nutrition. I don't really care what people eat. I think you should find what works for you. You know, if you find that you can eat meat and eggs and, you know, maybe even, maybe even you can have some fruit in there or something else that works well and you've tested it out and you're, you're pretty certain and you're objective about it, then that's what you need to do. I mean, there's some people that do fine with, you know, a little bit of avocado, a little bit of berries here and there, and they do totally fine with this. Again, my thought is meat is the most nutritious thing you can eat, you know, whether it's, you know, whether it's steak or, or, or liver, liver organ meat, we can argue about that. But generally, again, and this is, again, very simplistic, and, and I, you know, again, I, I'm, a, again, I'm a very simple guy, I think in simple terms, but I think that, you know, we are, you know, we are taking in animal cells to build animal cells, and that's the most efficient way to do that. You can make that, you can cobble together nutrition via a plant-based diet. Certainly there's people that do that. They're proving that all the time. Is it the most efficient way to do that? Do you have to eat six, eight times a day to do that and supplement like crazy to make that happen? Is there negative side effects that come with that? Certainly there's a lot of people that go on these plant-based diets, particularly vegan diets, and then a large, there's a huge attrition rate where they find their health suffers. And I think that's, you know, if we're going to go in that direction, we need to realize what are you going to do with 84% of the population that says they can't stick to the diet? Now what are you going to do? You're going to deal with all these sick people. So... Uh, but, yeah, the, the, the question about eggs, yeah, I think eggs are fine. You just have to kind of, you know, see what your balance is and how you tolerate them. What about uh, high-fat dairy? Five pounds, five pounds of meat. How do you get that in? Oh, yeah. So how do I oh, get yeah, it? You, it. Mean, you mean as far as eating it? I mean, I usually cook up a couple sticks. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like this morning I had Well, two... I mean, for somebody that wants to, wants to fall into the diet, I'm sure you can go on the website and we can follow some stuff. But I'm, 
But you know, it's like that's that's your, your freezer gonna be full, your refrigerator. Yeah, I mean, I buy I buy in bulk. I mean, I, I buy I find a sale, I buy in bulk. You know, again, I know this is controversial. Uh, from a human health standpoint, I don't think there's any good data. In fact, there's some data that maybe even is is opposite to this. It shows that the grass finished stuff is any more nutritious than the grain fish. I know there's different omega-6 and omega-3 ratios, and there's different things of conjugated and linoleic acid, some of those other things, but the amounts are really minuscule, and the difference is when you look at absolute amounts. So for now, I mean, you know, if you're going to afford this, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to pay for four pounds of grass-finished beef for, for the average person. It's just not practical. And so if you're going to say something, you know, everyone it's has 90 to... 90 bucks. Well, if you have to say everybody has to spend $90 a day eating meat, no one's going to be able to do that. You know, it's just not even practical. It's not even... It's not an option for most people. Most people that do this can't afford it. They're doing fine without that. Now, beyond that point, there's, there's the environmental aspect and the ethical standpoint. And I think we can... You know, what people don't understand about how... Cattle, in particular, raises, even if it's a grain-finished animal, it spends 80% of its life on pasture, regardless. You know, they, they go for the last few months. That's when they give the, they're given grains. And it's not that they're getting grains the whole time. They're getting forage. They slowly incorporate that in there to, to have them gain those last, you know, last bit of weight on there. And so, um, yeah, so I just buy, you know, I use my freezer. Yeah, I fill it up. I'll buy, I'll go to the, you know, the, I'll go to the butcher and I'll call him. I'll say, hey, man, give me 50 pounds of your ribeye at five bucks a pound. Load up on that stuff, throw it, in my, throw it in my freezer, and, you know, then I eat for a couple of weeks. And, and that's, that works out pretty well. So awesome. I have a boner. <laughs> uh, what about what do, about? do you eat? Do you eat the but hey, what, do you eat other? Do you eat sausages and things, other kinds of sort of processed kind of things, or no? Not not often. You know, sometimes you know, like if I'm at a social event and they've got sausage, you know, I might eat that. You know, a lot of the problem with sausage is it has a lot of junk in it. You know, you don't know what's in it. Yeah. They put a lot of gluten and soy and fillers and crap in there. So I'm not a big sausage fan. Occasionally, I'll have, I'll have bacon. I know it's kind of interesting. A lot of people really like bacon. The longer I've done this, bacon has lost its appeal to me. Which is really, kind of, yeah, it's almost it's almost crazy to say that, but I like it every once in a while. But it's not like I'm craving bacon all the time. I'd rather have a nice fatty piece of steak cooked medium rare, a little bit of salt on there, and yeah. I'm, I'm as happy as can be. I'm like I'm my with dogs. you there. I'm with you there. I mean, do, I I still have crave bacon. Yeah, but, but if I had yeah. if I had to be locked on an island for the rest of my life, if I was relegated to eating one thing, I'm with you. I think a ribeye. Yeah, it's hard to beat. Well, and I think that's I think. I think that the argument could make could be made, you know, like I just got back from Iceland, and I think those people were locked on an island for yeah. since the 800 AD, and they basically ate, you know, they ate, they ate lamb, basically. They had lamb and some fish. But, I mean, those people had a really close monitor. This is kind of interesting. In Iceland, which only has a population of 300,000 people, they've got like 1,200 people signed up as carnivores right now. That's more than 1% of their population. Wow. Well, it's, it's getting close to a huge percent of their population. Because they get it there, they understand where they came from historically, and they understand they lived on this frozen rock, and you weren't getting fruits and vegetables. They and they have a legacy of being some of the strongest people. Well, on exactly. The you've got you've got you know, John Paul Sigmarson, you've got Magnus for Magnus, eight world strongest man titles between them from this tiny country of three hundred thousand people, plus right. all the CrossFit champions. Right. And these guys are putting out beasts. And the other thing about Iceland, which I think is really cool, if you look at the people that live over a hundred, the centenarians. Iceland has one of the highest amount of centenarians per capita of anywhere in the world. So not only are they big, strong, robust people, they are kick-ass athletes, eating a largely animal-based diet, but they live super long as well, which I think goes against all the yeah, speaks volumes. It goes against some of the blue zone you know, hype that's out there. Yeah. You know? And I think, I think, again, if we look into longevity, there's so many things that impact longevity besides diet. 
that you know I, I just I just don't even like to look at those population studies. I, I mean, I, I think that people often neglect the biggest one, and that's stress and lifestyle choices. Um, we all are overworked and ha- are all kind of underappreciate our leisure time in America, or in the West, I should say, and not just America. You know, that, that has to be a bigger factor than anything. Well, the biggest predictor of longevity is socioeconomic status, you know, and, and stress goes that. If you're living some poor guy in the slum of Rwanda, you're not going to live to 100. I mean, it's just not going to happen. Western society, you look at countries with, with good stability, good access to health care, and, and decent wealth like uh, Monaco, Switzerland, Sweden, uh, you know, these countries lead the world in life expectancy, and it's because of those factors. And they all happen to eat a lot of meat, too, yeah. which is kind of interesting. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, there's a lot of things that go into longevity. So when people talk about longevity. I'm like, you've got to control a lot of things, and your genetics play a huge role in that, too. What about lactose low lactose but high-fat dairy, you know, like uh, things like some cheeses and, and, you know, heavy cream? Yeah, I think a lot of people, if they're going to do dairy, they're going to tolerate that a little better. Obviously, there's populations, you know. Again, a lot of people ask me about the genetic impact of diet, you know, what, what, what you're designed to eat based on what your ancestry is. And I think, you know, again, when we look at the human evolution, if we go back to Homo habilis, you know, about 3 million years ago, since that time, we've certainly been eating meat that time and probably even longer. Some of the Australopithecus and Artipithecus were meat eaters as well. But we have been tolerating meat forever. Dairy got incorporated into our diet 10,000 years ago. Same thing with grains. A lot of the vegetables that we eat today were not even invented you know, it's not like there was broccoli growing 20,000 years sure. ago. It was invented by us. We bred it out of like a mustard you know, mustard seed thing or a mustard plant. And so all these vegetables that we see now are new additions to the human diet. And so I think depending on where you lived, you know, you might have more capacity to, to handle lactose. And we know that. We certainly know that certain populations are lactose intolerant. Certain populations probably do better with certain types of grains. Uh, but I think everybody has this sort of at least some capacity to handle meat for sure. Um, but yeah, I think high-fat dairy can be a decent option for many people. I tend to minimize it. I don't know if I eat a lot of it. I get congested. I don't sleep as well. Right. It's an adjunct um, more than yeah, it is. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, you know, it's you know, flavor it as put it on your hamburger, put a piece of cheese in your hamburger. Yeah. Don't sit there and eat a block of cheese and think, you know, I'm getting my fat macros in because I think that's just a, you know, the whole. Again, this is I know a lot of ketogenic guys. They they, they really get hung up on macro counting, and I'm like. No other animal on the planet needs a calculator to tell them what to eat. Right. And, and I don't either, and you don't either. And I think this obsession with measuring everything down to the nearest you know, molecule is, is maddening. It's anxiety-provoking, and I think it's long-term counter, counterproductive. At S. Baker, I, I MD. Wanna, make, uh, Mike, Go ahead. Mike, I'll make a couple comments real quick. Sure. Is that I, I'm not a, you made a point about stress. I'm, I'm not a huge... Um, I don't push that as much as maybe historically it has been pushed. I, I, I think distress, helplessness is problematic. I sure. think if you don't exercise and attend your diet because of preoccupations in your life, that's a problem. But I think, I think stress can be really phenomenally, uh, you know, grit and stress and overcoming. I mean, yeah. I, I don't think, I think it'd be very healthy. But Physically but and psychologically, bad, I, let me rephrase that. Physically and psychologically, I'm, I think you're exactly right, Drew, that uh, the body needs stress. You need stress to to kind of build your grit. Uh, maybe it's it's anxiety. I guess the modern way well, of life. But, meh, it, that, I think the helplessness is okay. what it is. And, yeah. and certainly, if you have anxiety associated with depression or something, anxiety from trauma, that kind of stuff, or anxiety because you again, it's usually because you can't move forward, you can't do what you want, it makes you feel helpless uh, or powerless, that kind of thing. That that I understand is problematic. But but I I want to say that. 
you know, I used to walk around. I did a lot of uh, nursing homes back in the day when I was, you know, practicing full time. And one of them was a dementia nursing, uh, you know, Alzheimer's place. And the first time I started working there, I walked around. I was looking at all the patients and uh, all the men, and I mean every single one of them, had a picture at their bedside with them in the prime of their life. And it was always an admiral. A, you know, I had a car dealership. They had a fact. I mean, these were captains of industry and leaders. Huge, and I thought, oh, there it is. It's stress. These guys were stressed out, man. That's why they have Alzheimer's. And I talked to their families to see if there was some sort of common phenomenon there. And the only common thread I could find, they didn't sleep. And now we know that sleep is an issue, and that is where stress can can come to bear on us. So I just want to make that point about sleep being important. And and the other, you guys can chew on that in a second. But I want to make one other quick point, which is that for people that object philosophically to meat and eating meat. I heard an interesting argument the other day. I'm going to remain agnostic. I'm not going to support it or, or undermine it. But an interesting point is that these domesticated animals would not exist, would not have life, did they not have this symbiotic relationship with humans. And they live, a, most of them, a pretty long life uh, under this symbiotic status that we maintain for them. And, and it's, it's this, you know, it's not a lot different than a dog or a cat. They, they would not be out existing in nature were they not serving humanity in some way, which is kind of an interesting philosophical argument. Yeah, if you look at ruminant animals in the wild, you know, most of their young don't make it to adulthood. They're killed by predators. And so these cows that lived, you know, two or three years, you know, or a year or two uh, before we eat them are actually living long, more, a longer life than they probably would if they were left, left to their own devices in the wild because a wolf or some other predator exactly. would take them down and eat exactly. them. And they would kill them Precisely. in a, not a very humane way. That, I mean, that's a big point, is that, you know, I've just got into hunting now in my 38th year on the planet, and it's just been this year that I've that I've gotten into it, and you will very quickly realize not just reading about it, but actually being out there in a, in a hunting in a hunting experience that if you don't kill this animal in an immediate way by putting a, a arrow or a bullet in its brain, something else is going to eat it but first, and it's going to be horrible, and it's going to freeze to death. Or some the the way the alternative, I, I think people a lot of times have this idea that if you shoot if you shoot a deer, you're taking away from its Bambi like existence. Not true. Yeah. If you shoot a deer, you're doing it a huge, huge favor because now a bear can't eat it by the asshole. Well, I mean, we, we yeah, I mean, we, we, <laughs> we we've really detached ourselves from what really goes on in nature. I mean, it's yeah. kind of I call it the Disneyification of of nature. I right. mean, we we have a, pro, a generation of kids now that think. You know, like this movie Zootopia, where the fox is playing with the rabbit. I'm like, you know, no, the rabbit's going to get eaten by the fox. But you know, what, Doctor Drew, your point about Alzheimer's is pretty important because I think, you know, one of the things we're seeing a lot of people are linking Alzheimer's and calling it type three diabetes, and I think we have this looming epidemic of dementia coming, and I think it's it's right yep. on the heels of this diabetes. A chronic disease issue, and I think that, and that is so, as you know, mental health care, particularly things like dementia, are incredibly costly. I mean, it costs a family a ton of money to care for somebody who's demented, and I just don't know where that's going to that's gonna end up bankrupting a lot of people, if not the country in general, so we have this imperative to kind of fix this, you know, the diabetes is inconvenient, people have to take their blood pressure, they inject insulin, whatever, but once you get demented, man, it's it's a it's game over for a lot of people, and so... It- and the point you made about inflammation may, may figure in big with this too. So, so it's, again, important thing to focus on. Yep. Meatheals.com is the website at Sean Baker1967 on Instagram, at, at SBakerMD on Twitter. And then also uh, give people a little bit of information on the carnivore training system because I, I'm a big proponent. I, I'm, a, I'm a customer and I'm a believer. And I, 
I want people to uh, get access to that information. Yeah, it's just uh, you know, like I said, I've been training now for forty years, and I've you know, I've, like I said, I've broken records in all different ty- types of different avenues of sports, whether it was powerlifting, Highland Games, you know, I won the world championship in Highland Games, you know, as a master, uh, you know, track and field, and then rowing now. So all these different disciplines, I've trained with all these Olympic athletes. So I've kind of distilled what I found to be you know effective, uh, efficient. And safe because I think there's a lot of inefficiency I see in the gym. People wasting their time doing stuff. I'm like, why in the hell are you doing that exercise? What do you think you're benefiting out of it? They're not really doing what they should be to, to get the most out of whatever particular modality they're using. I incorporate that. You know, it's like a 12 week training program for people. Just kind of a general get healthy, get functional. Like I talked about the 100 meter dash, the things that allow us to do that, the strength, uh, a little bit of hypertrophy work, conditioning, the, the movement, the explosivity, and then I combine that with a diet and just talk to people how to you know, how to incorporate the diet, how to walk themselves, how to transition into the diet, the common pitfalls, the physiology that occurs, some of the science behind that. So it's just a little program that uh, people can participate in if they want. And where can they grab that? Uh, CarnivoreTrainingSystem.com. There you go. Drew, anything else? Well, I'm just saying if I'm not uh, deadlifting 350 in the next couple months, I'm going to be pissed. All right. I'm, I'm, you're my inspiration now. You're my inspiration. Well, i got to get there. Well, let me, uh, yeah, let me send me some info, and I can certainly, I can certainly uh, try to assist you in that stuff. But, yeah, eat a couple more steaks, and it'll help. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, Dr. Baker, I really, it was, a, it was a pleasure. Thank you for talking to us, and uh, hopefully and, and, more and people. Let me, I, 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 I want to echo that. I really, really was looking forward to this, and you did not disappoint. Well, good. I'm glad. Hopefully, uh, some your your listeners will enjoy it. And, yeah, uh, and 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 uh, hopefully, some be be some more meat eaters after listening to this. You know? Yeah, it's growing. The movement is growing daily. I mean, it's pretty cool. You know, it's uh, we've got a website. We've got a Facebook group, World Carnivore Tribe, uh, just about to hit six thousand people, uh, and that's in two months. So, I mean, we're just we're just going pretty quick on this stuff. Carnivore awesome. Tribe, World Carnivore Tribe. You get all these people that are doing this right. and trying it out. We got people I'm that have been doing it for they've been doing it for 20 years and 10 years and 5 years. They're kind of helping the newbies out and the rookies out and so pretty interesting stuff, but you know, go look at the mental health aspect of this meatheals.com. You'll see how many of the people report yeah. improvements in mental health, which I think is fascinating. There you go. Swole Patrol yeah. Uh, yeah. on uh, Podbean, Google, iTunes, of course. Please subscribe. Give us some five star ratings. Listen, but just listen. We uh, we we like doing this, and we want to continue doing it. So there you go. It is uh, facebook.com slash Swole Patrol Podcast. Also, uh, facebook.com World Carnivore Tribe is uh, is where you can find out more information about uh, Doctor Baker. And then, uh, as I pointed out before, S Baker MD on Twitter. Uh, Sean at Sean Baker nineteen sixty seven on Instagram, and then meatheels.com. Friends of Bergamot are back. It's, of course, a brand that's made an impact on us here. It makes a variety of supplements. They use the extract of the bergamot citrus fruit. It's full of polyphenols. It's a supplement that acts as a natural statin and may improve a number of cardiovascular conditions and fatty liver disease, as well as potentially high blood pressure and other things associated with the metabolic syndrome. Now the makers are bringing you a formulation called Bergamot Sport that provides all the same cardiovascular benefits, but with some additives designed to aid athletes and those with an active lifestyle. Bergamot Sport may help improve stamina as well as reduce recovery time and muscle inflammation. In an ongoing study, professional soccer players were asked to use Bergamot Sport, and the documented improvements have been impressive. I use the product. First Lady of Love uses the product, the Bergamot Femme. Physicians and cardiologists around the world are recommending it. For a limited time, our listeners can save 10% on their order by entering the code DRDREW at checkout. That's Dr. Drew at checkout, all one word. 
To try Bergamet Sport for yourself, visit bergamet.com. That is B-E-R-G-A-M-E-T.com. Or also you can click on the Bergamet banner at drdrew.com. Be sure to talk to your physician before you use any Bergamet products. In fact, before you use any product or supplement, be sure to talk to your doctor. Hey, everybody. It is the Swole Patrol Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at Mike Catherwood. And Dr. Drew is at Dr. Drew, of course. Join the email list today. Send your questions. DrDrew.com slash contact. And put Swole at the top of the email so we can get your comments. And this will get you a weekly email reminder with a link to this show and all the great shows that Dr. Drew and I do and all the shows that Dr. Drew does by himself and, of course, with Adam Carolla, the great ace man. Please tell a friend and subscribe on iTunes. Don't forget to rate us five stars. And on Podbean or Google Play, all three help us out. We also are on YouTube slash Dr. Drew and uh, hope you can give us all your comments, even if they're if you're a troll and you want to destroy our feelings and our emotions. Support our sponsors and the show. Click on the banners on drdrew.com for the links to, uh, to products. For special discounts for the products, Dr. Drew and I endorse 100%. Send questions and comments to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Swole Patrol Podcast, or on Twitter at Swole Patrol Pod. Also, browse drdrew.com for the This Life podcast that I co-host on occasion and all the other shows available like uh, Adam and Dr. Drew and the This Life podcast. A lot of great stuff. Um, don't forget to check me out on uh, K-Rock in the mornings on the Kevin and Bean Show. And uh, be good. Be swole. Hashtag Swole Patrol.